Hi, and welcome to this week's Foundation Stage Forum podcast. I'm Stephen. I'm joined by my colleague, Helen, as well as a very special guest today. We have Dame Christine Lenehan, who is the Director of the Council for Disabled Children. Welcome to the podcast, Christine. Firstly, can you tell us about uh, the journey you've taken to your current role and what your role entails? So I suppose my journey starts as a a child. Uh, My husband blames the Jesuits. I was brought up with a sort of zeal for change, I think, and uh, started volunteering, as you do when you're a teenager. And and actually, my first volunteering was in a long-term mental health institution. And I I was fascinated by the rights of people. Um, and as a teenager, I absolutely believed that I could single-handedly change the world. Um, I decided the way to do that was to become a social worker. And um, when I was doing my training, I got bored and uh, went to volunteer at a 20-bedded children's home for children with severe uh, learning difficulties uh, who had come out of an institution um, and fell in love with the group of children really enjoyed working with them, really enjoyed what I was doing. Um, And when I qualified, started to work as a specialist social worker for families of disabled children Um, and did that for a while in different settings and got really, really interested in where you had to be in the system to effect change. How did change happen? You know, as a social worker, you can make change happen for the children that are on your caseload. Uh, As a teacher, you can make change happen for the children in your classroom. But how did you get societal change? So that was my passion. And I became aware of the Council for Disabled Children and joined it to look at how do you make change happen? Where do you have to be? What do you have to do? And so I joined the council in 2000 and was lucky enough in 2003 to be its uh, director. And I've been the director ever since. Um, And for me, the reason I love my job, it is for me the best job I could have ever had, is that I have a world where I can still keep in touch with the lives of children and families. I don't go more than a week without families uh, getting in touch, talking to me. They're very good at telling me when I think they've got it right, and they're even better at telling me when they think I've got it wrong. Um, But in that that week, I'll also be talking to settings. I'll be talking to uh, local areas, health, care and education, and I'll be working with civil servants and ministers. And throughout all of that, what I'm able to do, not always, it doesn't always work, but always what you're able to look at is a whole system. Where do you have to be in a system to make a difference? And how can you make that difference happen? That's what keeps me going. I think I'm right in saying it was 2016 you received a damehood. Could you tell us how that came about? Well, it's a very peculiar process. You are never, ever allowed to know who nominated you and who said what and whatever. And I got an OBE a few years before that. It's a similar sort of process. And um, I think that when I got my OBE, I got my OBE from Prince Charles and uh, he said, the reason we give you these things is basically so you can go on doing the things that you want to do. Keep talking out. Um, and I've never held back from talking out. Um, and I've never worried about that, really. And so um, the Dame Hood was, came about. It was a very nice thing to do. I took my very elderly mother-in-law to Windsor Palace to meet Windsor Palace, Windsor Castle to meet the Queen. It was a very nice day. But 
the power of a damehood doesn't change you or it shouldn't change you. Parents who I've known for years would say to me, well, what are you going to call you now? And I said, you've been calling me Christine for 20 years. Why would it change? So you can't let it make you grand. But it's quite helpful for when reluctant authority figures won't give you a decision or respond. So every now and again, I now get an email from my, te- from my team that says, can you use your dameliness? And I say, all right, we'll write a damely letter. So it's about being able to do that. And I think for me, it is, you know, it's, a, it's an icing on a cake, but actually it is about being a persistent terrier with a bone for 25 years. Maybe somebody says, well, we'll give her this. It might keep her quiet for a bit. It doesn't, but there you go. It's, it's nice to hear that it's been helpful in your role, though. Um, yeah. So what do you see as the, as the current challenges we face in terms of SCND in the UK? <laughs> think the answer to that is where would you like me to start and how long have you got but (laughs) I think one of the biggest the biggest challenges we face at the moment are to do with uncertainty Uh, particularly at the moment you know we we don't have a government Uh, we are waiting to have one we have an SEND review uh, which took three years to come out you know mixture of COVID and everything else uh, for whom um, there has been a very strong reaction but a lot of that reaction is negative. We have a system that's in crisis. So where we are now is a system that is trying to work out next steps. The government's committed to a delivery plan by the end of this calendar year. That might get slightly thrown, given all the changes. Um, And that's going to be key, because there's something at the moment for SEND about how we put some confidence back in the system, I mean, actually, lots and lots of the needs of children with SEND are met on a day-to-day basis by good practitioners doing good things. Not that you'd notice that in the noise. However, there are still some fundamental problems are about where do you value those children in an education system? How much resources do we want to put behind them? How do you work in co-production with parents, but you don't lose sight of the rights of the children? And how do you bring an increasingly complex system together so that it actually works together around the needs of a child? So I think the next year or so is going to be critical in terms of understanding direction and level and understanding right across a number of things. Remember, the SEND review is not on its own. There's a big independent review of children and social care. There is a school's white paper and bill and the move to full academisation of schools. There is a wholesale change in how health is organised and some key challenges and changes in early years. So at the moment, every bit of our jigsaw is moving. So it's trying to hold on to the child through that and the system through that to get that paper. But beneath all of that, there's some very good work going on. I just wonder, Christine, linked to how your career started more specifically around social work are you aware of um the sort of current challenges faced um among social workers well for generally for social workers i think it's like the public sector as a whole there's a sort of loss of confidence and faith in the in the sector really i think i'm quite glad i'm not a practicing social worker now I think for children with STND, I think the biggest problem is that as local authority budgets have changed and and lessened, the system, while all of the evidence tells us that early intervention is a good thing, the system financially gears to crisis. 
So, you know, there are lots and lots of families of children with SEND who need support fairly on in their journey. They need support with diagnosis, they need support with assessment, they need support in accessing the system, they need support in um, understanding the decisions around their child. Uh, But because it's not bad enough yet, they don't get the support yet. So that's part of the sort of, you know, challenge that you're working with. We work a lot with social workers, helping them understand legislation, helping them understand decision-making, helping them think through, and also helping them to work in partnerships. So, you know, it's the heart of the system is what we're trying to do. Yeah, I definitely can identify with the sort of raising of thresholds through my sort of career working in specialist skills. Um, there might be a level of repetition here, Christine, but uh, because you have already mentioned the green paper that was released earlier in the year, but... Uh, do you feel it adequately addresses the challenges that we are facing? Um, I think it could do. So, you know, there is, um, like lots of government policy, it's sort of been hijacked by interests as things are. I think that um, if what it comes out with is a consistent approach to early intervention, for example. So if you take if you take the work we're doing in schools, we've put a huge amount of work into ordinarily available provision. What is it that children need that should be part of the contract school that, that makes a difference, that goes forward, that everything understands and whatever? If a green paper in its process can shift back, you know, it can move back to early intervention, then in itself, it can respond. There is no easy fix for SEND. There's no miracle cure for making the system work. But what you want to look at, so one of the um, areas of the Green Paper we've been looking at recently is stuff like national standards. Now, national standards are seen both positively and negatively uh, by the sector. But if you got them positive, so if what you were saying to families was, It wouldn't matter whether you lived in Cumbria or Norfolk, the care that you received, the provision levels you would, there would be a service for children with SEMH, there would be an early years intervention service, there would be a system that looked like this, that did that and whatever, how it would be delivered would look differently. You know, if you talk about North Yorkshire and Newham, one has, they have to have different delivery mechanisms. They're very different places. But the outcomes for children, wherever they live in the country, should be the same. And that's one of the things that the government's really tackling with. Now, a green paper by nature can only set out a series of ideas about how you do that. That's its purpose. The next stages of of tightening that down and saying, so what would it mean in practice for this sector, that sector, these sorts of families, is the next stage, really. So I think that the moment we don't know enough, it partly depends on it partly depends on the delivery plan that the government produces in the next few months. And it also partly depends on the world we're in. So I could exhort local authorities tomorrow to spend a lot more money on early intervention. And they will come back and say, yes, we'd really like to. We think it's a really good idea. But the budgetary pressures don't allow us to do that. So, again, part of the test is not just what happens in the Department of Education, but what happens in Treasury and ultimately politically whether think whether government and people think this is an area that's worth investing in. And if we get changes but no investment, uh, then I think we have challenge. You mentioned earlier that there'd been um, some negative responses to the paper. Could you give us some examples of th- some of the things people have come to you and said r- regarding the paper? Oh, uh, th- there is... Um, 
there is a sort of quasi-legal view, which is held by some of the parent groups as well, that the Green Paper is a deliberate attempt to um, undermine the rights of disabled children. Now, I am very clear that the government couldn't deliberately attempt that if it tried. It's just not able enough. You know, there is not a conspiracy at the heart of government. It's not capable. Um, however, where that's manifested itself to the sector is the uh, government's suggestion of both the introduction of mandatory mediation before tribunal and the idea of a tailored list of schools so that families in any area have a number of schools to select from. I think that that is not what government intended. Mandatory mediation, where mediation works well, it works really well. I don't think, you know, every case that gets to tribunal is a failure. The emotional and financial and procedural energy in getting that far for families, for the system and whatever is huge. If there are ways of settling disputes earlier, we need to look at it, but without uh, undermining the rights of families to, to go the whole way if they want to. You know, I would like there to be no tribunal cases because I would like disputes to be settled at school, at nursery, at, you know, at first stage. So families are confident that their children are getting the support they need. You know, once things go into a legal arena, it becomes conflictual. Um, and that takes a lot out of everybody. So I worry about that. And in terms of a tailored list, I think it depends how it's done. So I've been doing some work about five years ago now. The government asked me to do a review of residential special schools. Uh, and I looked about 10% of them across the land. You know, and my view is that children, whatever they need, should either live at home or if they can't live at home, they should live as close to home as possible because then family is what matters, it's what keeps them safe, it's what keeps them loved. So for me, a tailored list of schools will be a whole range of schools that are local, both mainstream and special. They could be about um, schools that are not local but needed. So if your child's got a hearing impairment and you need a signing school, you might not have a signing school in your locality, but you should have one within a regional distance that's sensible and helpful and whatever. It certainly shouldn't be about making a decision that your child goes 200 miles away from home, unless really that is the only alternative that's available for the child. So for me, it's about how you look at it from the, the rights of children and families and how you do that. I mean, I think there's probably mangled language and I think there is, this is not a popular government. This is not a popular process we're in. So some of it's come out of that. And I think also people don't understand the nature of a green paper. So what we've had to say to people is a green paper is not about government intent. It is a range of ideas that government is trialling. Government intent is the next stage, a white paper and then a bill and whatever. So what I'm hoping that the delivery plan will do when it comes out of government is make it much, much more clearer about intent. So we have listened to you. These are the things we won't do. We try them as ideas, but actually they don't work. We don't like them. We're not doing them. And there will be some of that. These are the things that you really liked, and we're going to get on with them because some of them are easy, easier anyway, like developing a national template for an C plan. And some of them will need legislation, and therefore this is the timeline. So I'm hoping that once a delivery plan is out and it's clearer and people can understand it, uh, that 
you know, the, the conversations will be more about how can we make this work or what are the challenges in making it work than a sort of belief that there's a conspiracy. It seems to be taking a lot of energy and doesn't cast a lot of light on the system, to be honest. Yeah, well, hopefully there's been lots of constructive feedback to the paper and, um, yeah, hopefully a lot of people have responded. Sure. It's interesting what you were saying around terminology and how there needs to be a shared understanding of of processes and terminology yeah. and um, so on. So what, what do you think around the, the subject of ableism? And do you think there's enough awareness of the term ableism and an understanding of how it might manifest itself amongst policymakers and educators? And is this a new term or has it been around, but we don't understand it? I think, I think it's been around for a while, but I suppose it's not something we, our, our view, our, our view is a number of things. Partly our view is absolutely that you work alongside disabled people in order to understand their lives and um, how their lives are impacted upon. And every piece of work we do at the Council for Disabled Children has young people's voices in it. That's part of our rules. So how do we check this out with young people from a range of backgrounds and needs and how does that work for them? And we make sure that they influence what we do. But our, our, our view is also about that the journey is around equality and citizenship. So what is it you do that develops that? So one of our most recent publications with DFE was about the Equality Act in schools and the Equality Act in early years. What is it you do to make life equal? How do you make it work and what do you do? And how do you call out when it isn't? So what is it? That, so, you know, if you take the, the, the madness of some of the behaviour policies at school, we were talking to uh, colleagues in Ofsted a couple of weeks ago, and, um, you know, we'd already got children who were excluded because they can't hold eye contact. You know, these are children with autism. We've had a child excluded because they've got a tick. You know, they have Tourette's, you know. So it, it's tackling that sort of lunacy in the system, really. It's about being able to say, hold on, the fundamental is these children are children. They have the same rights as other children. When those rights are not being upheld, then we step in. So there is something about being a, having a very clear rights base. There's something about, you know, as a white, able woman, how do I know that those rights have been infringed? The only reason I know is because I need to continually have a dialogue with people who experience that on a day-to-day -day basis and understand that. So it's something about standing up for rights. And there is something then in the work we do about helping people understand rights, you know? So if I take some of the evidence for schools at the moment, why have I? Why have we got so many able academically, so you know, five A to Cs, uh, young people with ASD coming out of mainstream schools? What has happened to a tolerance in a system that means that those children are not included? Now, quite often that's not about willful intolerance. Sometimes it is. Usually it's about not being able to make and not even recognising the need to make reasonable adjustments that um, children need. I, I used to have a, a fairly um, strong line on early years, which I would happily go, go back to and reinforce. So you, you'd walk into really good early years settings and you would see 
some really good community stuff on the walls, you know, children from different communities and how they play. And you go in the home corner and you see all the different stuff and you see whatever. Uh, my challenge to early years all the time was, where is me? I am a disabled child. Where am I? You know, that was very, very early years that we set that out. There was at one stage a range of dolls. I think they were any Arnold. They were the ugliest dolls with Down syndrome you'd ever seen. You know, the young people I work with Down syndrome don't look like that. So, you know, where is me? Where are the heroes? Where are your storybooks when you're two and a half of disabled children who succeed and all of that? Now, we've gone some way in some of that with, say, some of the Paralympic stuff and whatever. But, you know, it's not just about sport or acting. It's whatever. So it's about, for me, it's a system that starts at its earliest years talking about positivity and rights and belief and aspiration and whatever and carries that through the system we have a long way to go i think as part of my sort of advisory role i'm often talking about those reasonable adjustments that practitioners and i generally focus on earlier settings can make to um, ensure yeah. that there's there's genuine inclusivity there um it was recently announced that the Research and Improvement for SEND Excellence Partnership, led by the Council for Disabled Children and including the National Development Team for Inclusion, will deliver a three-year contract to support SEND improvement in local areas. Can you tell us a bit more about the project, Christine, and what it will involve, please? I can. So the RISE Consortium, and thank you for reminding me what it stands for, because I always forget, <laughs> but the RISE Consortium has a two-part programme. Uh, the second part of the programme, which is just being set, set up at the moment, is a new What Works in SEND programme. So we're working with the University of Warwick and a range of other partners, including ISOS, to develop a What Works in SEND website. This isn't about children's specific interventions. They tend to be through the Early, early, oh, early Intervention Foundation or the Education Endowment Foundation. This is about what is it in systems that makes them work for children with SEND or not. So that piece of work's going on. But the, the first part of the RISE programme is an improvement programme. Um, about half, which is also one of the reasons the, the sector is so concerned, about half of local authorities have had inspections that show that they are not currently um, compliant legally in relation to SEND. And you know, it's a big thing about how do you make sure you've got legal compliance in delivering services? Well, I want them to move from compliance to excellence. So part of it is when local areas, this includes um, health as well, when local areas have areas identified where they are weak, it's about understanding the support that's needed. So let me give you um, a couple of different examples so you understand what we're doing. Um, we get a fair stream of um, issues about education, health and care plans. So people haven't got the process right. They don't understand what the social care advice in should look like. They don't understand where health care advice comes in. You know, they don't understand who's been assessed for them and how those processes are being managed. Uh, and usually they've fallen out with parents. So our role is often to go in and reset those partnerships, help them understand the guidance and the law and say to them, well, you know, in different areas of the country, this seems to work, would that work here, to work with all the different parties and, and put that back on track. On the other hand, you can take somewhere where a number of things have uh, fallen apart. 
And local authorities say, well, we need we need two days on this, one day on that. We need to we need to know how to work with health. We need to know how to join commission. And often we're saying we're not quite sure that's what you need at the moment. Let's let's go back a step. So I was reading a piece of work we've been doing this morning. Very commonly, you go into an area and you say to the area, so what should it be like for a child who lives here? And they think, hmm. And so you do a piece of work that says, okay, if you're going to work in this area, we want our children to be happy. We want them to be included in our communities. We want families to feel confident. We want, And you work through this process with all of the partners. Now, it sounds a bit motherhood and apple pie, doesn't it? But the idea is if you don't have a vision, you're never not going to get to that vision. So it's about setting some of the visions and outcomes. And then it's understanding what goes below that. So if you want all your children in your local authority to achieve the best education that they can get, you're going to have to look at exclusions. You're going to have to look at children educated out of home. At home, You're going to have to look at progress. You're going to have to look at confidence in the system and whatever. If you want children to be healthy, you need to understand how to look at your integration between health and care and parents and whatever. So what we do is we provide a space and a framework for parties to come together. We always, always work with parents. We always get the voice of children and we work across health, education and care. And we get them in various rooms, in various workshops and we get them to understand some basics and work together to build that. So often there is an issue about data. How many children have you got with this level of need? We don't know. All right, well, let's help you find out then. How do we get that? What's it costing you? What's it costing you for the outcomes you get? Where are you getting your information from? How are you working together? How do you work with your schools forum? How is it linked in? What's going on? What's your access to? So it really is, we use a diagnostic approach. So we look at the things that we've seen that have gone wrong again and again. We enable people to come together to think it through. And then we do not impose a solution because it might work like that in one area. It won't work like that in another. But we get people to a point where they can see the tools that they need to use, think through for those processes. And then we work at every level. So sometimes I get called in to talk to politicians, to councillors. You know, councillors take a lot of very angry flack from parents of SEN, but don't always know how to see the other side of it. So how do you work with councillors? How do you work with leaders? How do you work with families? How do you work with staff? And so we work with people. It's only, they're only relatively small programmes. We have to agree the length of the programme in advance to get to a point where we can leave people with the tools to improve. So that's how it works. And we bring various partners like the National Development Team for Inclusion who do some excellent stuff on preparing for adulthood in at various stages as we will bring others. We work closely with people like Contact who represent parents, but a whole range of things coming together. So it's really doing a, a really clear piece of work that says what you need and how can we help. That's very interesting. How, how would you advise someone who's running perhaps a small early years setting or school about reviewing their provision and how, how inclusive that might be? Where, where does a leader start? Do they wait until they have a child with specific needs and adjust what they're offering or do they preempt it and, and put things in place beforehand? 
So the biggest piece of work that we're doing at the moment is the EYSN programme, so Early Years and SEND programme, um, which is a coalition between us and people like Nason from the SENCOR point of view and ICANN on speech and language and communication and providers like Dingley's Promise, um, who've done a lot of work in this area to go forward. Um, and the reason we put that programme together, and I think we're in year three now, the reason we put that programme together is because actually, while there's all sorts of activity at a, a level, you know, within a setting level, you can look at the best way of running a programme for this and the best way of running a programme for that. Um, what we felt was there really wasn't a strategic approach to what early years and an SEND look like in local areas. How do you bring together providers? How do you, you know, I used to love... Um, early years senkos, to me, they were the best thing that existed. I'm really sorry that changes happened because they often acted as the glue between services. Try this out, try that out, try whatever. So the EYSEN programme has taken a few, and do have a look, all the details are on our website, but it's taken a few strands of work and started to look at how do you do this? What does early intervention look like? Manchester, who we've worked with quite a lot on this, have done a really, really good piece of work on um, ordinarily available provision in the early years, for example. So it's been about building those resources together and understanding it. So it's not necessarily about creating an environment for a child with a specific condition. It's about creating an environment that children can thrive in because you know that if a child with a specific condition where you need uh, you know, the support of a, a peripatetic team or a health support, whatever, comes in. You have a system locally that says, yes, I know. I know I can talk to this person about that need, rather than, you know, pushing services back onto a sort of reactive footing, where either they don't take children at all or they do take children and, and it's not very successful. Um, and it's also, as always, contacting one of the partners in participation with parents. So it's about helping parents and professionals understand what's needed on the ground, in what way to make it happen. But there's some really, really nice resources on the website. Do have a look at them as they run through. Um, so that's where we are on early years at the moment in trying to build that. And I think the other thing we've been looking at quite a lot is we have been alarmed by the number of permanent exclusions in year one. You know, obviously, a lot of the stuff you do in the early years is also about school readiness and about getting children equipped. And I think we are we are worried about children in those early years in terms of uh, entry into school and how schools work and whatever, and the management of children at that, that early stage. So that's another piece of the work we've been looking at as children go into school. How do you make sure that is confident and staff are skilled and you know, people understand what's going on? Our final question, Christine, it was, do you think more can be done to represent and celebrate cultural diversity amongst our children with learning differences and disabilities? Always. Yeah, absolutely and utterly. Um, I, um, I think that I think that the children that I see are happy to, happiest are children who are confident in who they are. And I think everyone in the system has a role to support children to be who they are. One of the things that we run out of NCB is we run the Anti-Bullying Alliance. And for the last five, six years now, uh, we've been running programmes because of specifically aimed at children with SCND. Because, you know, as the world has moved on, um, you know, children are told it is wrong to bully kids who are 
of a different race. They're told it is wrong to bully children who have a different sexuality or gender. Um, but some are other bullying children because they have SEND seems still to be okay. So it's something about taking that on for all children with SEND. And then, there, you know, if I work with a group of children, uh, then within the first, mm, the first early stages of the conversation, bullying will come up again and again and again and again and again. So it's something about that and being different. And then I think we have a really strange position where children can have one characteristic, they can't have more. So you can't be disabled and black. You know, we, we don't seem to be able to cope with multiple identities and you certainly can't be disabled and gay. I think it just blows people's minds. So, you know, within that, you're having to say, and it's okay to have a range of cultures and you can be that and you can do that. And for me, that starts in the earliest years. It starts in the confidence that builds there. You know, I'm saying to nursery workers, make up the story about a child with X who succeeds in life. You know, I don't think we see enough stories. I don't think we see enough representation. I don't think we see enough. And I, I think for the, the other thing that we've, the, in the school's white paper, uh, the government has set a target that all children should be able to reach uh, key stage two standards in reading and writing. 90% of children should get that. And they can't understand why they've had a backlash from the world of SEND. And partly it's because I want 100% of children to be celebrated for what they achieve. You know, even the children I work with who have the most complex needs achieve, but we are really, really poor at celebrating that, at celebrating those achieve. And it's not about, you know, I'm not, I'm not, this is not about running awards that say because you have a disability, you must be brave. I think that drives me crackers. It's about saying all children achieve, let's work out what their achievements are. And those children who work to achieve and succeed, let's celebrate them. And I absolutely agree that has to go across the whole piece. And we have to recognise that children can have multiple cultures and that each of those cultures are important to them because they make up them and each of them needs to be valued and come together. Thank you, Christine. I think that's a really nice way to finish. Uh, we really appreciate you joining us on the podcast this week. Um, and yeah, nice to have met you. And you.